Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is a returning champion, uh, Brooke Shelley, a noted sapphist who lives in Portland, Oregon, with her cat, Snorri. She writes about technology and queer theory, works for Turbine Lab Labs, not lads, and shares the board for Basic Rights Oregon. Hi, Brooke. Hey, how's it going? I sort of wish now that your company was called Turbine Lads, um, <laughs> and it was just about a bunch of lads who were also turbines. But this is—it's almost too. Turbine Dads because like half the company are dads. Oh man, I everything about your bio is just very, very—it's like the Mad Libs of you, <laughs> which I guess is just all that a uh, uh, a bio is. But still, it makes me happy every time, and I'm so glad to have you back on the show. I'm glad to be back on the show. It feels uh, it feels exciting. I feel a little bit more prepared, a little bit less prepared, too, at the same time. Because you know how to do it now. You realize that you can just, like, you know, roll in and let the people know what's right and what's not, and uh, that you're going to leave the world a better place than you found it a few minutes earlier. Exactly. And that's that's the key here, is giving advice on things I am completely unequipped to give advice on. Yeah. I mean, as are we all. Um, we're doing our best. And I think the last time we were talking about this, you said you still hadn't decided just how, like, uh, how much you were going to shoot from the hip. I don't think that was actually a yeah. phrase that you used, but I, I don't know. Did you feel like you found a, a happy medium? Yeah, I think I settled on one. I, I think I've got my, uh, my advice persona. Good. Because I, I have to say, as as one of the friends that I go to most regularly for advice, um, it is great sometimes when you uh, just come at it with the perspective of like, well, either you're going to do something about it or you're not. Here's what you could do. Otherwise, <laughs> what are you going to do? It's um, the shit or get off the pot advice. It really is. I can always count on you for that. So um, I, I actually think that's going to be super, super useful for our first letter because it's a, a, a letter uh, where on the one hand, the problem is big and the problem is real. And on the other hand, I think the letter writer might have an opportunity to not have a problem. I think you're right. All right, you go ahead and read it. Okay, um, the subject is babysitting. Dear Prudence, my sister is a stay-at-home mother of two and constantly bellyaches about how tired and stressed out she is. My brother-in-law has to travel for work and is often gone for days at a time. I work full-time but have no children. I try to help out only to be rebuffed. My sister says she has no time to go to the grocery store, so I offer to pick her up, pick up some items for her. I get criticized for getting the wrong brand of toothpaste or the wrong size of cereal. If I offer to help clean, I'm told I'm doing it wrong, and my sister will clean up after me. I've offered to watch the kids for an evening or even a few hours so that she can get out to a movie or get her hair done. 
She never takes me up on it. Other friends with kids have offered to babysit, but my sister would rather sit at home and stew. It's affecting her marriage. My brother-in-law approached me about helping her more while he was away. As soon as he gets home, he gets slammed with a litany of woes my poor sister had to suffer through. He is a good man, but I can't force my sister to let me help her. Talking to her is a one-sided monologue of her misery. I often put the phone down and pick up a book while making agreeable noises. She never notices. I watch my coworkers' kids often and my neighbors on occasion and even overnight. I don't understand why my sister is so different. Does she like being this unhappy? What do I do here? I think we can answer the question about, maybe not does she like being unhappy, but is she determined to continue in the circumstances that produce the unhappiness? The answer there seems very clear, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think she sees herself as a Job. Yeah, I mean, she'll she'll ask for help, you will offer help, and then she will say, that is not what I wanted. So, you know, when you offer solutions to her complaints, she resents them because she does not want solutions. She wants something else. It's not quite clear to me what that is, but whatever it is, it's not, I'd like to have less work and more help. Yeah, it. I think when someone is acting like this, um, you kind of answer your own question uh, when you say, I can't force my sister to let me help her. That's the crux. You can't. Mm-hmm. You you literally cannot um, get anyone to do anything they don't want to do. Uh, it's sort of the, you know, rock and a hard place. So the best thing you can do at this point is stop trying. Yeah. And, and I think there's a couple different ways of stopping trying. Um, you know, if you want to stop going to the grocery store on her behalf, I think that's fair. Um, If you offer to help clean and then she does it again after you stop doing that, I think stick to, hey, if you ever want to let me watch the kids so you can go out, um, that's certainly fine to say, especially because I imagine you enjoy staying, spending time with the kids. Um, But if she doesn't take you up on it, don't try to offer other things that she's made it clear she doesn't want. Um, And then when it comes to, you know, I often put the phone down and pick up a book while making agreeing noises, but she never notices. Stop doing that. Yeah. Um, it's not super healthy. Either, you know, either, you know, listen in those moments um, or say, hey, this has been going on for a really long time. I'm sorry to hear that you're stressed out, but I'd like to talk about something else, um, which may sound like just the scariest thing in the world, because what if she gets mad? Well, she's kind of already mad a little bit all the time. Um, And at least then you would not have to be half reading a book and half listening to her. You could either just read the book if she was like, nope, I only want to talk if I can complain for 20 minutes and then do nothing. Or she says, oh, wow. Oh, God, you're right. Okay, Uh, what do you like to do? And I think an important question to ask yourself is, um, you know, what what are you getting out of this? What what is it about being helpful that's important to you? Mm -hmm. And what would it cost you to not feel as you were being so helpful? Um, Because maybe it feels nice to be like, I'm selflessly giving of myself, but I'm not getting anything back. Like, it sounds like you you've also kind of built up a a desire to maybe feel bad about this. Um, If she was writing in or her husband was writing in, I would say there's a good opportunity for therapy. Uh, But you're writing in. And so I think, like Danny said, one of the best things you can do is have that conversation and say, you know, I feel less respected or less loved. I feel hurt when you don't um, value my input or mm-hmm. when you take the things I do for granted, uh, that's probably a good thing to talk about. Like yeah. this person's in your family and it sounds like you want to keep them in your life. So it may be helpful to have that conversation. It's certainly possible that she has no idea how you feel and she just thinks everyone in the world is failing me 
and uh, you know, I'm the only person that can do any of this stuff. And it might be a wake up call if you were to say, I feel really bad and it hurts. Um, Maybe she hasn't, you know, thought of that. Yeah. And I think, too, the most important thing to let go of is a strategy that I kind of term like trying to gym from the office your way out of something. And I have done this in my own life and it doesn't work. The The strategy of like, I put the phone down, pick up a book while making agreeing noises. <laughs> it's sort of like in that moment, you are imagining yourself as the character Jim on The Office, who especially in the early seasons, spends a lot of time looking directly at the camera as if there were some sort of invisible, reasonable audience watching this and sympathizing with you. And that sort of action that you're doing in that moment, reading a book is very ostentatious, but she also doesn't register it at all. Right. So you're making a lot of eye contact with this camera that doesn't exist as if to say like, man, if someone were to see this conversation in a TV show, they would immediately realize that I was being taken advantage of. Um, that's not going to work with your sister. You know that she doesn't notice that. So every time you do that, um, you're like cheating to camera when there's no camera. <laughs> and so it might make you feel, you know, reasonable, beleaguered, put upon, like a really good person who's being taken advantage of, but it doesn't get you what you want and it doesn't help your sister get accurate feedback on what she's doing and how it's affecting you. So uh, as a strategy, I don't think it's a good one. That does not mean you have to like haul ass over to your sisters right now and say, listen up, you do the following eight things that suck and you need to stop right away. But Um, I do think you need to find some combination of, one, scaling back on your need to fix when she feels bad. Um, You know, I get that it's hard when somebody you care about doesn't feel well, but when it's this kind of a pattern, when she doesn't seem to want actual help, when she seems mostly to want to complain constantly, um, you really need to scale back the degree to which you think, oh, gosh, I have to do something when she feels bad. You don't. Um, And I I think also trying to find a way to say, hey, I've noticed that this happens a lot whenever I have tried to do this. It's been very clear that you don't actually want that. So I'm going to stop doing it. Um, and, and then when it comes to your brother-in-law, um, I, I think the thing to say to him is, um, I have tried to help out more. She's made it really clear she doesn't want that. I really hope that you're able to talk to her um, about the balance of work in your guys' home. Because it doesn't seem like it's working for either one of you, but I can't do that for you. Um, And not in a way that's like, you jerk, you're trying to make me do it. I understand why he came to you for help. But just to really make it clear, these are going to have to be difficult conversations that you and my sister have as husband and wife. And I can't do it on your behalf. Totally. My guess is she won't love it. I I think you can try to say it as lovingly as you can um, and to, you know, divorce yourself from outcome. Um, She may not get it immediately, but, you know, in the future, if like 20 minutes into a phone call, she's doing it again, I I think you can and should say, hey, I've actually got to go. I I hope you're able to figure this stuff out. And I think we all have people in our lives like this that, um, you know, want to be the expert, want to be the person, the only person who's capable in their life. And yeah, I think, like you said, the best way to deal with that is to have difficult difficult conversations. And if they don't produce any fruit, to um, press pause on those relationships or walk away, depending on how much you can. Well, Um, you know, not to like bring it all back to like our friendship, but I think one of the things that I have really valued, uh, you know, I, before I was like uh, ready to take steps towards transitioning or coming out, I would call you, you know, not infrequently yeah. and talk to you about what I was afraid of or what I was anxious about or how do I know that what I'm feeling is real? What does real mean? Um, and it never I, I don't think it never got to a point where you said like you stop calling me, knock it off. But <laughs> 
Um, you did, I think, offer me really helpful advice in the sense of, you know, I think you've thought about this a lot. Um, I think you've yeah. investigated this with a therapist and that's been useful to you. It seems like this is getting more present, not less. Um, I, I think in your situation, it will help to talk to other people in your life. And until you do that and until you consider or like giving yourself permission to try to transition, um, probably this won't get a lot better. And that was really helpful. Um, yeah. Because you were you were speaking from your own uh, position and the position of having seen a lot of people go through something similar themselves, um, and it helped me realize, okay, I, I have maybe reached the limit of how much feeling very very bad alone in my bedroom is going to help me uh, with the question of whether or not I should transition. Totally, I think there's always a happy medium between um, like feeling bad in your bedroom or pacing endlessly and taking action immediately. And, and the degree to which we are inclined towards either direction is um, really ingrained in us from a young age. So right. I know people who like look uh, look before they leap uh, for about a year or two. Uh-huh. And I know people who leap without looking and then like years later go, wow, I should have thought about that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's but, not uh, like in this case, I think you've you've ruminated a lot. Um, the person who wrote in and and, you know. You, you, you're thinking about this in an okay way. You just need to take an action and hopefully your life will get better. Yeah. Yeah. And if nothing else, you will have fewer conversations that run for, you know, half an hour to an hour where your sister gripes about toothpaste brands. Um, yeah. And you're pretending to read a book. That will be a good outcome, even if she gets a little upset with you. And put all that energy you're spending buying her toothpaste into buying yourself the best toothpaste you can. Yeah. Find and then some good congratulate toothpaste. yourself on being so good at picking your own toothpaste. Yeah. All right, this next one I saved for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Anytime. Um, The subject is self-loathing lesbian. Dear Prudence, after years of denial, I have finally come to realize I'm a lesbian. I hate to say this, but I think I have a lot of internalized homophobia. All of my friends are straight. I dress in a way that reads feminine slash straight. And I hang out in straight spaces, and I don't know anything about lesbian culture except through TV shows. I don't want to get all new friends or change my wardrobe. But sometimes I'll see cute girls at the gym and they'll assume I'm straight. Plus, I don't feel like a real lesbian, in quotes, because I'm not evolved in activism. I don't really like nature, etc. <laughs> I hate how judgmental I am, but I wish my life would just go back to normal. Am I awful for feeling this way? All my friends are super liberal and would be fine with me as a lesbian, but I'm not fine with myself. Please help. So I think we just need to start by saying you do not have to enjoy hiking to be a lesbian. <laughs> also, I love that, uh, um, you know, being a lesbian isn't normal, which honestly, like, that's part of my identity as being a weirdo. So I, I do appreciate that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, this I, I, I think this letter writer is aware that they're dealing with a lot of self-loathing right now. And they have uh, this idea of there's normal life and then there's lesbianism. And I don't know how to reconcile the two. And I think normal is the gold standard to uh, reach for. Um, and that's a lot to deal with. And lesbian life is really just having like elven friends with short haircuts and uh, living in the woods. Um, but, but she doesn't like so, to hike, Brooke. I, yeah, no, I know. But that's why I'm saying she'd have to make all new elven friends. So I, I think that like you're you're developing your view of what a lesbian is through TV shows is definitely impacting this. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that you would need to have all gay friends or that you would need to uh, cut your hair short or quote unquote, get involved in activism. None of those are a thing. Honestly, you could do everything you're doing right now, except just go tell the girl at the gym you think is cute. Hey, I think you're cute and like wink or something. Um, that's all you need to do. You just need to have sexual desire for women as a woman 
and then bingo bango you're a lesbian um what you do with it after that is the more challenging part and sort of the lifelong difficulty of being a queer person in a hetero world but uh i don't know danny like you're a queer person how many of your friends are straight because i have a lot myself some for sure yeah i i think There's this idea that, like, either I keep my life the way it is with no lesbians, no other queer people in my life, and then I feel isolated and misunderstood. Or I throw away all of my straight friends and I only hang out with lesbians and every third word out of my mouth is lesbian and I wouldn't enjoy that. I feel like I would become a one-issue person. <laughs> and that's yeah. those are not your two options. Um, you can keep... That, I mean, it's not the 20s. Yeah, you can keep all of your friends and, and, and get some other friends like you can add to the circle of friends um your straight and gay friends can even hang out sometimes um what i i don't i don't want to like make it sound like i feel dismissive like I, this person i think is young they've they've had a lot of like tough stuff they've gone through to accept themselves as a lesbian and i think that that's like i don't want to make light of the fears and anxieties that they have but i also do think no. the more lesbians and queer people that you meet and invite into your already lovely life, the more you will realize um, that this uh, does not need to look like um, throwing out everything else in your life that you enjoyed before you were able to come out to yourself um, and starting over from scratch. And and I will share this from my own life. Like You may find that as you come out to the people around you and as you start trying to date women and as you start trying to accept yourself as a lesbian— that the people in your life right now may not stay in your life forever, but honestly, that's part of being an adult. And as you change the things that you like to do, the people that you like to do, and the places you like to go, the people that are in your life right now may not follow along. Um, You may find you have less in common or less to talk about. And especially um, a lot of people I know who are first coming to terms with being trans or being queer, uh, I think there's a little bit of like, there can be the flip-flop of like initial excitement of like all of a sudden this is what I really care about the most and your friends may not have that in common with you so you find less to talk about and maybe there's a um, overcorrection sometimes and then you come back around and a year or so later you're like, hey, we haven't talked in a while. I miss talking to you about the things we used to talk about. Um, I, I don't think you're in danger of that right now because it seems like you're you're more in danger of trying to ignore that part of your life that feels uh, pretty pressing. Um But I can tell you this, I know a lot of uh, lesbian and queer women who dress femme or feminine, who uh, look quote-unquote straight, and sleep with plenty of women. Um, I don't know what city you're in or what the community around you looks like, but uh, we are all over the place. Um, There are so many lesbians everywhere, and if you like any kind of activity, I guarantee there are lesbians who also like that activity, whether it's playing with Pokemon trading cards uh, going to see a movie or skydiving. Those are the like, only three things that anyone enjoys. Exactly. Those are your three options. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> three options. <laughs> and, and I'm glad you brought that up too, because I think that that is something that's worth untangling, um, which is like sometimes I'll see cute girls at the gym. I'm pretty sure they assume I'm straight. By the way, you don't know that they, ass- I mean, unless they're coming up to you and saying you seem heterosexual, uh, <laughs> you you are just assuming that they are making that assumption. Um, exactly. And sometimes I think, as you say, lots of lesbians are mistaken for straight women all the time. And, and frankly, there is no amount of like lesbian you can look that will guarantee that you will never be mistaken for straight in your lifetime. And I realize that saying something like looking like a lesbian means a billion different things. Um, uh, but I, I think mostly what I want to do is is remove the idea that 
quote unquote, looking straight is um, a problem that is unique to you or is something that you have to get rid of in order to date women. Um, You know, part of the thing about being a a, a gay person is you are not necessarily going to be walking around with like a sign flashing above your head constantly that makes it very, very clear um, who you are interested in and that will guarantee that women will come up to you and ask you out. Um, So, uh, uh, you know, the easiest way to date women is not, I think, to change your wardrobe. It's to ask women out, as you said. Um, Yep. And that's going to feel new and daunting and difficult. And it may help first to make friends with uh, lesbian and bisexual women um, and, and, and all sorts of people. Um, but that, you know, you, you don't you don't need to. You, you certainly can. We've all done the first haircut um, <laughs> that definitely signals to a lot of people like, hey, what's up? Come talk. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's a lot of ways to meet other people gay women that does not involve just signaling via your like you can't let your wardrobe do the heavy lifting uh brooke i think it is it is you who i have sometimes used the phrase with um it's difficult if your haircut is the gayest thing about you (laughs) by which i don't mean that like there are certain things that can only be gay or can't be gay um i'm not trying to make value judgments here but i think we've all a lot of queer people rather have the experience of thinking if I get this haircut or if I stand like this or if I lean like this or if I wear this outfit that will Mm -hmm. solve the problem that most of us face which is like how do we find each other how do we communicate what we're interested in Um, how do we ask somebody out without fear of being rejected in a homophobic way Um, those are all big questions that everybody deals with Um, and I don't think that there's going to be one look or amount of activism that's going to um take that question off the table. And even once you get over the homophobic uh, rejections, right, which, you know, they can still happen, but I I would suggest that eventually you start to get an idea of, like, who might be receptive. Um, You still have to face the actual fear of rejection, uh, which, in my mind, is the scariest thing. Yeah, like, on top of everything else, it also might just be that you meet somebody and you like them and they don't like you. And and that's in addition to everything you just had to go through. Like, there's a lot there. Um, Yeah. And I would say, too, I think that um, if the internalized homophobia, if the lack of self-acceptance is still really, really lingering, um, you know, it might be worth finding, like, local LGBT support groups, um, finding, like, a a gay therapist. uh, Not a gay therapist. Good Lord. uh, Like, an LGBT competent therapist. um, I don't mean conversion therapy. um, Who can kind of help you talk through, like, what are some of the assumptions that you make about what it means to be a lesbian? Um, What are judgments that you have against yourself or against other people? How can you process those in ways that are, um, you know, useful to you and do not just result in, like, externalizing your self-loathing onto other people? Um, Both going on dates and then also finding, as you said, like places that lesbians and bi women hang out um, and making friends. And again, that doesn't mean throw your old friends away. It just means add some new people to the to the circle and get to know more people. You will probably meet people you want to date through friends. You will probably date some of your friends. Then you will probably go back to being friends. Um, then some <laughs> of your exes who are now your friends will start dating each other. Uh, it's going to be a whole thing. It is. Um, and you've already found one of those places, which is the gym. You go to the gym. A lot of gay women go to the gym. Yeah. Um, you might want to look at like meetup.com. There's a lot of like sort of resources there. There are lesbian groups for nearly everything. Like I said before, um, sometimes those skew older, sometimes younger. But if you have hobbies, I will, unless you live in a very small town, um, it is likely that people who are uh, queer women uh, also like those things and, and hang out and do those things. So you may be able to, you know, dip your toe in the water going to those groups. And doesn't mean that you have to, 
um, yell who you are when you're in those groups. It doesn't mean you have to tell everyone that this is your first time ever spending time with lesbians um, or that you only know about them from TV. But hey, if you've seen some lesbians on TV, that might be a topic of conversation because uh, everyone in my community still talks about the L word, even though it aired like 10 years ago. It has been so long. And yet, and yet, as you say, it is a big touchstone, um, at least for it's all we've certain. got. <laughs> well, and, you know, that's the thing, too, like the thing like lesbian culture, like that was a very specific form of like mostly white, uh, mm-hmm. like cis Los Angeles wealthy, like related to movies lesbians in the mid 2000s like there's a lot of different kinds of lesbian culture um and i hope that you find different forms of it that feel appealing and exciting and delightful and fun and sexy and affirming to you um and i think the only last thing that i would say is like to whatever extent you can um don't let the first couple of like lesbians or queer women that you meet feel like a referent. Like if I don't like her, I'm not going to like any lesbians ever. She is representative of the whole community. And if, if we don't vibe immediately, then that's just, that's what my, the rest of my life is going to look like. Right. Um, yeah. My last piece of advice would be a fashion piece of advice, which is on. that just like a sort of straight world has a lot of different fashions at any one time, whether it's street fashion or high fashion or like, your local community's sort of fashion. Lesbian community also has a broad variety of fashion expressions. And just like you may shift one year from wearing Ugg boots to another year wearing Louboutins, maybe in the lesbian community, you go from Doc Martens to Nikes. You may have to figure out and and decide what your style is just like you would normally um, now that you're, normally. you know, thinking about, yeah, quote unquote normally <laughs> uh, before you had this sort of like realization. And I've seen a lot of people kind of say, well, this kind of woman that I want to date likes this kind of woman. So maybe I will start styling myself in a manner attractive to that person. And then later on, maybe realize they hate doing that and they want that person to be attracted to them however they want to dress. Um, But we all get our cues of how to dress and what to wear from the people around us. Uh, You just may not have been aware of it because the community that you were getting the tips and and hints from was the dominant culture. Um, So, you know, it's all a construct. And a lot of stuff will eventually trickle out to the wider uh, non-lesbian culture. I mean, I think many of us have heard jokes about how, uh, you know, the the popularity of the undercut would sometimes make it more difficult to figure out if a lady was receptive <laughs> to dating other ladies. Um, also, I want to point and out the final that shirt. Le Bouton makes sneakers, so you can even uh, split the difference there. Um, I did not buy, but once deeply coveted a pair of sneakers when I was uh, in weirdly Las Vegas looking at shoes. Um, <laughs> I was waiting for a flight, and I really, really, really wanted some very fancy sneakers, and I did not buy them because that would be outrageous. But I think about them often with great This fondness. is something you and I have in common, is we both deeply love shoes. We just deeply love different shoes. Very different kinds of shoes, but you are one of my favorite people to talk about shoes with, I think, in part because... We were both very fussy and like interested yes. in finding just the right pair, but we're looking for very different things and it just takes all kinds. And yet we are both gay. Imagine that. You know, <laughs> in very different, different ways. Tastes. And yet it just makes the world more beautiful and wonderful. So I love it. It's the best. Ugh. And and anyway, I want to say also to this person who wrote this letter, like, welcome to this exciting world. There's so many cool, smart people. Um, the world honestly just opened up even more now because you get to be friends with everyone. Mm-hmm. And you get to date girls. That, which is the best part. I I also might point you towards, I wrote a thing for the toast about dating. The toast? Why, what's about that? about dating as a trans woman, but, uh, you know, it may be applicable. Yeah, yeah. I 
wrote a lot of stuff before I thought I might be trans. So I don't know if I can recommend any of it because I uh, <laughs> I was doing a lot at the time. But um, yes, heck yeah, check it out and good luck. Keep us posted. All right, next one is all you. Cool. Oh boy. Subject, uh, out of bounds. Dear Prudence, my niece cut her brother out of her life after he used the N-word in a fit of anger against her biracial stepdaughter. The little girl had drawn on some of his work papers. While no one is happy with my nephew, a lot of the family think my niece is overreacting. Her brother apologized, but my niece says only a racist would ever use that word, and people reveal who they are under pressure. She has been struggling as a full-time stepmother after her husband won full custody of the kids and is hypervigilant as a result. My niece will not attend any family event where her brother is, which leaves the rest of us in a bind. Her parents are extremely upset about this rift, and I am the only one that my niece seems to talk to anymore. I don't want to push her away, but no one is going to shun her brother completely. What should I do here? Um, if you, a grown man, see that a little girl has colored with crayons on some of your work papers and your response is to call her the N-word, you are an enormous racist. And a bad person. Yeah, not that's not... Yeah, I don't want to get into the business of, like, trying to grade racism on a curve, but that is, like, advanced racism. Yeah. That's god-awful. And anger management issue is, a, like, a plenty. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Nothing about... Like, this is not even just, like, oh, a heartfelt apology and we can all move on. Um, this was not, like... This does not fit into that category. A little girl used some crayons, which little girls do, and he called her, like, the number one racial slur. Um, Mm -hmm. So the the, the sentence, like, look, none of us are happy with him, but we think the niece is overreacting. Like, what would it take to make you, like, deeply angry with him? Like, if this is your bar for, like, oh, man, Josephus. You shouldn't have done that. I don't know why I went with, like, an ancient historian of the Roman Empire for a fake name. But, like, yeah, I, I, like, if, if is, as a family, your response has been like, man, you shouldn't have done that. Glad you apologized. Really think about it. Like, this, this man needs to change his entire life. Yeah, I wonder if there's, a, there's an underlying attitude of, like, well, who hasn't done that? Oh, um, yeah, a- absolutely. It, which... Which is uh, may not be what you meant by this letter, but it sounds like that a little bit. Like, well, none of us will cut him out of our lives because, like, it's not that bad. And I think first acknowledging it is that bad Mm -hmm. um, is pretty important. I understand that, like, in in my opinion, cutting people out of your life is not an effective way to encourage them to change in every case. Um, But saying to him something along the lines of what you did was abhorrent. um, That little girl has enough on her plate without having to deal with your absolute shit. Um, And until you, you know, seek out some counseling and maybe go deal with your anger issues, um, I would prefer you not to be at the family events because I think this little girl deserves to be at them more than you do. Um, You know, that that's a way forward. Uh, You know, it's, it's a tricky thing in this case because most of the time the person who's in the family and everyone's already like, sort of made excuses for years for whatever other stuff they've done yeah. gets to stay in the family when the new person has to deal with all of the stuff that people sweep under the rug. Right. Um, like, if you've ever married into a family, you get that, like, oh, don't worry about Uncle Jim. He's just that way. 
don't accept that Uncle Jim is just that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that line about, uh, you know, my niece has been struggling. She's hypervigilant as a result. Like, I can see the way in which you are setting this up to dismiss your niece. Like, by virtue of the fact that she has been going through a difficult divorce, um, you want to say that she's overreacting. And I think it is pretty cruel to use the fact that she's had apparently a difficult couple of years to say, therefore, if she gets upset over a grown man calling her little girl this vile racial slur, um, like that shouldn't be paid attention to. Like that's that's a fucked up way to bend over backwards to to dismiss her. Yeah. And you should know that that is what you were doing. Um, you say your niece says that only a racist would ever use that word. I, I, I agree that it is racist to call someone that word. Yeah. I don't think that your niece is making an outrageous statement there, um, especially when it is a grown man um, saying this to a little girl. Like, this is not a case of, like, oh, uh, you know, he, he, you know, had five or six drinks and then, like, forgot to slice enough birthday cake for everyone. This is, like, a grown man in full possession of all of his faculties saw that a child had doodled um, and went with the N-word. And and I want to, as a as a white person, I want to say that like uh, if an important thing for us to do as white people is own the fact that we are racist, that we live in a world of systemic inequality, and that the way that we enact ourselves is usually, you know, at best propping up sort of institutional uh, white supremacy, and whether or not we interpersonally use certain words or you know get mad at certain people, right? Um, that doesn't make us any less culpable in that regard. And so sort of writing it off as like only a racist would use that word. It's it's hard. Like, yes, racists will use that word, but racists do a lot of other stuff, including shielding family members who do this sort of thing from any kind of consequence. Yep. Um, so maybe interrogating how you yourself feel about the use of words and the use of things that, um, you know, are very super racist. Uh, you know, think about how you react to news stories about black and brown people. Um, think about the ways in which, you know, you act politically, right? Those things are all affected by that. And right. so um, if you do some soul searching, you may find that you yourself harbor some of those feelings. And I would suggest rooting those out and, yeah. and working with a therapist on those. Just ask yourself the question, why is it so important to me that I make excuses for a grown man who used this word against a little child who had done something that all little children do. Like, why is that? Why am I so deeply invested in protecting him from possibly being called a racist? Um, yeah. My guess is if you sit with that for a minute, it will be because you feel like, well, if he is a racist, then I am a racist. And obviously the worst thing that can happen is for a white person to be called a racist, not for a little girl to be called the N-word by a family member because she was coloring. Like... Right. I, I just invite you to extend some of the emotional imagination and empathy you have been extending to, you, you know, this adult white male relative who hurled a slur at this little girl and spend five minutes imagining yourself as her um, being a child, drawing and hearing that and thinking that's something a family member called me. That's something a grown man called me. I know it's not good. Yeah. And I know that that's me. Um, I, I, I I, I think if you were to do that, if you were to really do that, you would know that your empathy belongs with her and the woman who is protecting her. Um, yep. And that if all your niece has done thus far is say, I don't want to be around him. Um, like if all he did was apologize and that's it. No, like 
I, I, I gotta really investigate my life. I gotta really turn around this racist approach I have to the world. I gotta deal with my anger. I gotta deal with my racism. Um, uh, like if all he did was say sorry as if it were this is not a one apology fix sometimes that happens in families this is not one of those situations i understand why she doesn't want to be around him um and uh, you know the implicit ending of this letter is like i'm the only one who's really talking to her her parents are really upset um how do i basically convince her to not be so mad that's not your job yeah your job is not to convince her not to be so mad um your job is to not defend this guy um, your job is to look for the racism in your own life. Your job is to ask how your niece's little girl is doing um, and let this grown ass man yeah. answer for his own actions. I think that's dead on. Yeah. And I, I um, if for any reason the mother is listening to this, uh, this is the terrible thing that's happened. You deserve anything but this. And I hope that your family um, figures out how horrific they're being and um, finds a way mm-hmm. to make things better for you and that you find people in your life that support and care about you in the way that you deserve to be treated. Yep. And, and thank you for looking out for your little girl. Um, thank you yes, for not for sure. trying to minimize it or say you have to forgive him or putting her around these people who want to minimize this. Um, you were doing the right thing in protecting her and looking out for her. And I'm very, very glad that you're doing that. That's the right thing to do. And to anyone else who might be in this family, if you ever see any of his work papers, just draw the shit out of them. Just doodle any fucking thing you can think of. Draw everything and anything that comes to mind. Draw the entire series finale of Game of Thrones inside every piece of paper in his home. But no work paper be sacrosanct. Uh, just doodle self-portraits on his car, everything, everything. Replace every <laughs> note on the apps of his phone with self-portraits you've done with the like, little doodle app. Just, I want that man to see art on every professional piece of paper for the rest of his life. <sighs> All right, last one. So the subject of this next letter is faking it. Dear Prudence, I've been dating my current boyfriend for just under a year now, and it's going great. He's kind, supportive, interesting, a good communicator. I can see him being the one. We've talked about marriage, but neither of us is in a rush. The problem is that I've been keeping a secret from him, and it's eating me up inside. I lost my virginity to an emotionally and sexually abusive man who never cared about my pleasure. We only had sex when he wanted to, and he never... uh, We only had sex when he wanted to, and foreplay didn't exist for him, so the sex was always painful. He was my first, so I never knew that sex wasn't supposed to be this way. Eventually, he broke up with me after I was sexually assaulted, and he felt like my body no longer belonged to him. In my sexual interaction since this relationship, I rarely orgasm. I can get myself off easily enough when I masturbate, but usually when I'm having sex with a man, I just can't pursue that kind of pleasure. I feel like this is wrong and probably makes me a bad feminist, but usually I just fake it so that the guy stops trying. I really love having sex with my current partner. He's caring and attentive and all of the right things. I tell him when sex is painful for me, and he's the first partner I've felt comfortable saying that to. I've even had a couple of orgasms with him, which puts him by far in the minority. But most of the time, I fake it like I always do. It makes me feel like a liar, and even after great sex, I want to cry. I love him. I can see myself marrying him. I can't see myself marrying someone I'm lying to on a regular basis. Also, I feel like I deserve orgasmic sex, and I feel like he would want that for me too if he knew about it. But how do you tell someone that you faked almost every orgasm for a year? Is there a world in which I don't have to tell him? What if I don't tell him and just stop faking it? I feel like I'll have to explain my sudden loss of ability to orgasm. Oof. So, this is 
painful. <laughs> it is. It is. There's so much going on here. I think the first thing I want to say to this letter writer is like on top of everything else, she is beating herself up for like the strategy that she has developed to really like survive. Right. Yeah. Um, like you did not do this on a whim because you thought it was fun. Um, and, and yet you're like, I know it's wrong. I'm probably a bad feminist. Um, you are a person who is dealing with abuse and trauma and you have been doing your absolute best. And it has yeah. only been very, very recently that you have felt safe enough around a partner that your mind and body could even consider the idea of letting this big guard down. So this is not like a lie. I mean, yes, it is not the truth, of course, but this is not a lie in the sense of uh, selfishly, I, I wanted to mislead my partner um, or I just did it because I, I don't feel like it. Like you have been dealing with really intense physical and sexual trauma. Um, and so the fact that you have been terrified to share a, a moment like that with a partner that you have felt, even with a really great partner, kind of shut down around sex makes a ton of sense. And it is not like, don't don't use language like wrong or bad feminist to describe yourself in this situation because you have been um, remarkably, remarkably brave. I'm sorry, I know it's a little cheesy to say that, but I I, I really do feel that. Yeah, it's super hard. And I, um, you know, I think that a lot of people, um, a lot of people who are trans or queer, a lot of women have dealt with the same kind of thing. So, you know, my heart goes out to you. Um, I think that, you know, you ask about talking about this with your partner, and it sounds like you really care about your partner and you really want to share things with your partner. And um, I recommend talking to him. But uh, that said, it may be helpful to have a mediator in in the way of like having some sort of if you have a therapist yourself, uh, if you don't, I recommend having a therapist for sure. But even having a therapist that you both can talk to so you can sort of work through not just this, because I don't think this is the only thing, but um, the general feelings of like, how do I develop and, and share trust with a person um, when my trust has been so horribly breached in the past? And that's a long and difficult thing to work on even when you care about and love somebody um, and being able to work on this stuff with somebody else sort of guiding it can be really, really helpful. I think a lot of um, it's pretty clear that a lot of men in the world are taught that they are a failure at sex if they can't bring someone to orgasm, uh, which is definitely not the case. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can find a way to, you know, change sex to a thing that you do, it sounds like you have fun and good sex. What if sex didn't have an orgasm at the end of it all the time? What if sex could just be fun? Um, you know, getting your partner to also just enjoy what it is and not look for some sort of outcome uh, can be a good, like, longer-term goal. Um, you may even find that in doing that, like, orgasms follow. Yeah. But uh, I think whatever happens here, it's going to be a longer process, and it may be helpful to have other people involved um, in that sort of counselory capacity. Uh, but it's it's a super, I would go as far to say it's a super common thing, um, this sort of issue. And I wish more people talked about it because it's uh, really easy, I imagine, um, for you. And it's definitely been easy in my case, too, to feel alone in this and to think, oh, my God, I'm the only one doing this. Right. Um, and, and like Danny said, don't use words like bad or or whatever um, for yourself because you're not. You're you're surviving and you're dealing with it. And you care and, and you not only like think that you yourself deserve good things, but you want good things for your partner, too. Um, and it sounds like in a lot of ways he is uh, really aware and caring 
And um, it's possible that he'd be really receptive to this sort of thing. If you said, hey, um, here's the reasons why I felt unsafe in the past. You know about some of them. Those have influenced some of the ways that I've acted with you, and I don't feel great about it, but here's why. Um, you know, that kind of honest communication can be really difficult, but mm-hmm. I would hope that if if someone really cares about you, they're able to hear that stuff. Yeah, and I think the really crucial thing for you to remember, letter writer, is that um, when, when it comes to stuff like this and all the trauma that you've been holding on to, there can be a sense of, like, if I have this, like, if I know that what I look and sound like when I am on the brink of orgasm is something that is private and wholly mine, I have a little sexual world that nobody else can intrude on, and it belongs to me, and I'm in charge. And that's really big. So when you say that, like, it's hard for you to get into that mindset when you have sex with a man, um, I get that. Like, I think part of the reason that the idea, like, there's a sense of loss. Like, I don't want to have to tell him because um, there's this kind of idea of, like, if I give this thing up, I will not have a safe, private sexual world. Um, And in the past, when you've had other people in your sexual world, it has resulted in trauma and assault and rape. Um, And so any kind of conversation that you may have with your partner about this, I encourage you, take your time, talk to a therapist, find find a good sex positive therapist i don't mean sex positive in the sense that like everyone should be having all the sex all the time as much as possible but like somebody who is like aware of about how trauma informs our daily lives and and can be helpful and gentle and patient um and help you figure out what you need um i i feel like one my concern here is that you're already really worried about if i have to tell him you know, the, he's such a great guy. I feel like the implication there is like, what if this hurts him? And my fear is that as great a guy as he may be, if he hears this and he goes straight to, oh, this is really hard for me. Oh, gosh, I feel like, again, not that he doesn't have a right to feel that way, but that the big issue here is how do you experience intimacy with him having had intimacy used to abuse you in the past? So I, I think part of your fear is like, if I say this, the story now becomes he feels hurt or betrayed or sad or depressed about the fact that I was not actually orgasming with him before. And now there is no room because all I feel is guilty. Look at this other thing I fucked up. Look at the other way in which I'm bad. And I don't want that for you. So I think, you know, you need to give yourself a lot of time. You need a lot of help and support in figuring out how you would want to talk about this with him. And I do think ultimately it will feel good. I think you will feel better. I think you will feel less alone, less isolated, um, less like you cannot let him into this part of your life. But I don't think you have to do this overnight. Um, I don't think you have to frame this as like this awful thing that you have done to him. I, I think this is something that you can figure out ways to share with him so that he understands um, that you are th- that he's the first person you've been able to talk about this with. Yeah, and it's, it's a challenging thing. There, as far as like, other things you can do, um, finding ways to explore with each other things that are not sex, that are like making out and things like that can be really cool too. Um, you know, if there's ever a trust breach in a relationship that includes sex, I think there's a period of time where you rebuild trust um, and finding a way to do that where you both feel good about it. Um, that's something that, you know, there's a lot of books out there that can be helpful for that. Um, many of them are sold at sort of sex positive stores as well. Um the sorts of stores that might sell like magic wands also often carry really helpful books about like sexual intimacy. Um, But, you know, we all live in this world of like a a patriarchal dominant culture that tells us that like women are 
tools of men for sex and that men are sort of entitled to orgasms and that the sort of more evolved man is the man who is willing to give an orgasm to a woman. Um, so I want to say that I'm also really glad that you yourself can find pleasure on your own. That's really cool. And I hope that you hold on to that because it's um, it's a good thing. It's really good that you can take care of yourself in that way. And um, and I hope that that continues to be the case. Um, and I hope that you know that, like Danny said, his response is uh, will be really telling when you start to talk about this stuff. Uh, and hopefully he will understand the myriad reasons why uh, it's been difficult for you to... Um, share those intimate moments with him and and not immediately leap to any kind of accusation or whatever else. Um, but yeah, I feel for you. This is, it's a hard thing, uh, but you're not alone. There's a lot of people out there, uh, including myself, who have dealt with this and it's it's challenging. Yep. Yeah. And, and so to, to go into it thinking too, yeah, like this will be a number of conversations. You may both need to, to like take a little pause from certain types of sex and intimacy for a while. That does not necessarily mean um, that that's going to be what things are like forever. Of course, he also will have some feelings about this. I don't mean to say that like his only job is to show up and be like a beacon of support and never have an opinion or a feeling of his own. I just mean I, I, I want your trauma to be the center of this. I want that to be the primary thing that gets paid attention to. Um, yep. And yeah, again, like this is probably going to be a way in the future, but, you know, at some point after you two have had a number of these conversations and when and if you are ready to try to start rebuilding intimacy, um, one of the things that you could do is have him with you when you get yourself off. Um, yeah. So that there's not a pressure of he is trying to figure something out or trying to achieve something that he thought he had achieved before. Um, and to also, I think, just bear in mind, too, like it's wonderful to do things that are like sex adjacent, but not sex. Certainly have sex in ways that are not like geared towards getting off. Um, and also, I think, talk about ways in which like sex where you touch yourself to finish is not compromised sex. That's not a worse no. version of sex. That should be something that like is always uh, available like that's a completely that's very common frankly like that's not Super that common. common and i think a lot of people think no it should be like if not hands-free solely based on like the you know audio visual clues that you give a partner um and that's just a lot yeah. that's a lot to put i think into. you know sometimes it almost feels like people think um, not only should it be hands-free, but I should almost be actively trying not to orgasm, and that person should break through my like my intentional disregard for their ministrations. Yeah, there should be some mind-reading like and magic like, going on. In every single case where somebody else is involved in you having an orgasm, you are still the prime mover, mm -hmm. and um, you have all of the power there. And and uh, you know, it's it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. Um, we talked about therapists earlier, and I think that um, having your partner also hopefully is seeing a therapist. I think it's good for everyone in the world to have a therapist if yeah. they can afford it and it's available to them um, because he may want to talk about some things uh, that he needs to deal with on his own that uh, you don't really need to hear or work with him on. Um, but if he has feelings about, you know, his worth as a man and his ability to provide orgasm or whatever, that's fine. He can feel those feelings, yeah. but he needs to talk to those, uh, talk about those with his friends or his therapist or spiritual guidance counselor, whatever he has, because um, those are important things for him to work through as well, regardless of whether he's in a relationship with you or not. Yes, I, I think that's such a good thing to point out, too, because I don't want to make it sound like any of his potential feelings would not be important or meaningful, simply that especially like based on where you are coming from, you would be 
not the best person to support him with that. Those feelings matter and deserve attention and support and care. And of course, there will be times for the two of you to talk about that because you're partners. Um, but the primary person or people he should be going to with this hurts me or I'm feeling sad or I feel like I've let her down or I, I feel some sort of way about my sexual prowess, the majority of that should not be going to you because you've already got a lot of self-loathing on your plate um, yeah. and a lot of self-recrimination. So that that's what I mean, not that it doesn't matter what he feels, but that um, you're not going to be able to help him out with all of that. Um, and I, I just think, again, you don't have to do anything right now. You are not a bad person. If you do not tell him tomorrow, you need time yeah. and help to work up to this. Um, but you say, I can't see myself marrying someone I feel like I'm lying to on a regular basis. I just really want to encourage you to pay attention to that. I, I hope so much that you do not force yourself into a situation where you say like, well, I've already done it th this long and I love him. So my only option is to keep doing it forever. And that's the price I have to pay for having faked it the first couple of times. And then I locked myself into something. And now I just have to do this for the rest of my life until I die. Um, you do not have to do that. You, have, you definitely don't. Yeah. Um, and and I, I would suggest too, that like, if this is something that you're, if you're considering marrying this person, and you really care about them. Um, it's highly likely that you both have a few things in your life that you could work on together yeah. um, and with a therapist that would make a potential future marriage way stronger. Um, I don't know anyone who's ever regretted not getting married sooner or sorry, later rather mm -hmm. um, waiting a little bit longer is often really awesome. Um, you know, you have a lot more time to think about this and plan this. Uh, hopefully you have an incredibly long life, mm -hmm. um, whether apart or together. And uh, that life is made richer and better by taking a lot of time now to really care for yourself, love on yourself, and and find supportive um, therapists, friends, um, and confidants that you can work on this with. Yeah. Um, so glad that you reached out and asked, and I hope that you seek out some more resources and and take care of yourself. Yep. Yep. Uh, Brooke, well, thank you. This was moving, useful, sometimes funny, sometimes <laughs> painful stuff. Um, and I'm really, really glad that we got to do this. Me too. I, I hope we help some people. I hope that we hear back from some of them. Uh, as a regular listener to the show, I'm always glad when there are questions that I feel equipped to uh, respond to a little bit. And I actually get a chance to do that. So um, it's a nice feeling. Well, I am, as always, so grateful to you for coming on the show. And I can't wait to see you again soon. Yeah, I'll probably see you in September. Bye for now, friend. Bye, buddy. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Thank you.